Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lo, podcasting from Singapore today. And joining us today in Singapore as well, remotely, we are very privileged to have Christian Petero, who is the CEO and founder of the Singapore-based Pacific Broadband Satellites. And he will be speaking to us on broadband via satellite, the technologies, the trends, and also the recent developments. So thank you so much, uh, Christian, for your time today. Sure. Thank you for having me, Jane. Yeah, so um, Christian, we talked at the uh, Global Space and Technology Conference uh, panel discussion in Singapore, and that was back in 2020, before the COVID-19 pandemic struck. And a lot has happened since in the well, in the technology market, but also in the satellite um, technological and market developments. And um, I just want to sort of uh, bring up the fact that, you know, many of our listeners may be hearing, for example, how the Ethernet access is being disrupted in this Ukraine conflict and how Elon Musk um, Starlink came to the rescue, sort of stepped up and filled the gap during that crisis. And this provision of emergency broadband access is, as I understand, is also one of the offerings from Pacific. But before we go into the details and talk about satellite technologies and the latest, um, for our listeners who are not too familiar with Pacific broadband satellites, could you perhaps share your personal journey on how you came to see the need for broadband internet and communications by satellite? What made you take the plunge to launch Pacific in an industry that has traditionally high barriers to entry, and especially you know, for one that has got limited capital at start and also without the support of a parent's company? So what's sure. the story there? <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's it's been a very daunting journey. Um, well, I guess it all started with me being a satellite professional. I've had my entire career in that industry. Um, and so there's little else that I can do. So I, um, you know, work for various companies over the years and been helping companies try to, for instance, move from broadcast to broadband. Um, the, the bread and butter of the satellite industry is still very much coming from broadcast, television broadcast. Uh, a lot of operators are still drawing their main revenues from that. But it is a segment of our industry that is getting saturated, that is not experiencing the growth that you know they were seeing in, say, the 1990s. So uh, a lot of these operators are, have contemplated moving to data, to moving to broadband, actually, moving to provision of internet. And so over the years, I've helped a number of operators look into that, see how they could transform their company and embrace that segment of broadband. Uh, but it's very difficult for broadcasters to take that step and fully embrace broadband. So many of them are just embracing network services rather than full broadband. And so over the years, I really learned uh, how the uh, the market of uh, rural and remote and extra urban regions of the developing world are actually very buoyant for the, the satellite broadband. There was heavy needs for connecting these regions. Sometimes this need was deeply fundamental, you know, helping healthcare, helping emergency services, helping education. And there was little supply because these markets are 
for the lack of a better word, uh, not very sexy, not very appealing for operators in general. You know, those are markets that are less affluent and you need actually to streamline your business and have a very particular business model to be profitable in these markets. So I took on the challenge. It was um, just one day, I guess, uh, in 2013, I decided to take the step um, after a friend of mine basically gave me the guts to do it. You know, it was a, on an epic bicycle ride that I took here on the Singapore East Coast one day All that right, okay. uh, I decided to take it. And, <laughs> um, and then the rest was history. We basically did it one step at a time. I surrounded myself with the right people. Almost from the beginning, people from the industry. And it's, you know, we snowballed the project by first raising a little bit of money, then going to see potential customers and telling them, look, if we put a satellite in space, will you buy that capacity? And that uh, the market responded very, very well. And, and actually, you know, it all came together because I took so many years in preparing that business, uh, in trying to show other operators that there was a market, but very few ended up embracing it. So I took the leap of faith myself based on all this experience and it, the rest was history. And we launched the satellite in 2019 in the end after a long six years journey of financing the satellite and uh, building it uh, at uh, Boeing factory. And uh, we've since uh, operated the satellite and it's been, it's been great. It's been two years. Of course, we had to weather the pandemic in the meantime, but um, you know we can mm. we can come back to that. Quite quite an exciting journey, and I think um, also quite a, a few venture capital firms and also including Asia Development Bank also agree with your vision there. And I understand they signed a fifty is it a fifty million agreement with Pacific back in two thousand nineteen. To provide yeah, affordable, that's, that's right. Yes, go no, ahead. We, we, no, it, just a, a little correction there. We're not financed by venture capitalists, actually. So we try to look for VCs, but because of the timeline that VCs have in uh, in their funds, it didn't match the timeline of the construction of the satellite of all the lead time you would have in a venture like ours. You know, it took a total of six years or six and a half years to actually start monetizing the business. And that's beyond the life of many VCs. So we had to actually look at family offices and we are currently entirely financed by family offices. Ah, okay. That's a that's an interesting distinction between uh, what the venture capitalists are looking for in terms of returns from a time horizon perspective versus family office. That's interesting. Um, so as you pointed out, Christian, so a key market for Pacific is of course uh, providing high speed, low cost access for the countries in Asia and the Pacific, especially in remote areas of small nations. You also mentioned that you launched your first satellite in 2019, and that was, I believe, also on um, Elon Musk's SpaceX Falcon 9. Is that right? From Correct. Canaveral, yes. Uh, the satellite was built by Boeing, but launched by SpaceX. Correct, yes. Right, okay. And the satellite, I understand, is a high-throughput uh, satellite. It's a next-generation geostationary satellite operating in the car band frequency. And for those of us who hear about companies, um, well, again, such as Starlink, taking advantage of the, the low Earth orbits, which are the LEO satellites to launch uh, broadband communications, can you maybe highlight to our listeners the features of you know, the geo satellite that you launch versus, say, for example, the LEO and how these 
these features deliver the affordable high-speed access for the markets that you target? And I think it's a very broad topic, but if you could share some of the key considerations. Of course. Well, first of all, the frequency that we use are similar to frequencies that the low Earth orbit satellite use. We are geostationary satellites, so we focus on satellites that are quite far from Earth. But uh, the advantage of a geo satellite is that it stays at the same location in the sky throughout its entire life. So essentially, you point a fixed antenna somewhere in the sky and the satellite will always be there for about 20 years in space. But the frequency that it transmits with are similar to the frequencies that the low Earth orbit satellite use. Uh, I believe, for instance, Starlink uses KA bands as well. A slightly different KA bands, not, not exactly the same because otherwise we would interfere. But it's, it's um, you know, KA band as well, so it's the same nature of frequency. But the main, the main difference, I would say, is the fact that our satellite is far from Earth, but stays at the same location in the sky, whereas low Earth orbit satellites are very close to Earth, but they zoom by in the sky all the time. So they're not staying at the same uh, location in the sky. So by definition of these satellites, the low Earth orbit satellites, you need to have a daisy chain of satellites. So you need to have many, many satellites that are constantly taking over the service from one another. Once the satellite has zoomed by, your ground system need then to connect seamlessly to the uh, subsequent satellite and so on. You know, every time a satellite passes by, you then wait until it kind of sets over the horizon and then you connect to the next one. It is actually a very sophisticated system, those uh, low Earth orbit systems. And it seems like a good idea, I would say, because, you know, you have a global coverage with them. You know, the, the Internet may be more responsive for certain application because they're very close to Earth. But the downside is that you need to launch a lot, lot, lot of satellites just to connect a few locations on the planet. So there's a huge amount of wastage with the low Earth orbit satellites. So, you know, in average, you could estimate that they can use, really use only maybe 10% of their satellite at any given time. The other 90% uh, of their satellite are flying over regions where there is no market or they're flying over countries that are not friendly and that does not allow them to broadcast into their country. Um, whereas a geostationary satellite, because it's fixed, it's actually constantly over a given market. It actually doesn't need more than one satellite and it can pack a lot of power, a lot of punch for delivering broadband, you know, it's actually can be used at 100% of its capacity. So whereas the small satellite, they constantly see a market and three minutes later, they no longer see a market because they may be flying three minutes later over an empty ocean or over a polar caps. So that's the main difference. And from there, you draw a lot of um, economical variation between the two systems. One has a lot of wastage, may have very small and nimble satellites, but because of the wastage, these satellites have to be extremely cheap compared to the provision of service of a geo satellite. Plus, the ground system of a, a LEO satellite is a lot more sophisticated because it needs to include all this tracking of satellite left and right, and it's, it's actually very, very complicated. 
and you have a lot of, of blockage or so like you if you use this in a high rise environment or in a, an environment with lots of foliage the signal of the satellite could be blocked uh, regularly from the foliage on a tree or from a building that is in the field of view because those satellites are moving in the sky so the two systems are very different uh, what i think is that our system is a lot more suited for providing internet into rural and remote areas. The ground system are very simple and we can easily modulate the amount of capacity that we deliver on the remote areas. And plus, I believe our cost structure is actually cheaper per unit of bandwidth delivered than the LEO satellite cost structure. But on the other hand, the LEO can quickly activate their service over regions like we've seen with the, the war in Ukraine, for instance, with Starlink, where they have announced that all of a sudden they had a lot of bandwidth supply there uh, mm -hmm. because their satellite by definition flies everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's a difference. It's very it's great for connectivity of aircraft on the move of ships as well as for the military, which are not things that we do with our satellite. Mm -hmm. So, if I understand right, uh, for the communities and the nations that you focus on, the rural areas, these are populations where they do not have a lot of money to pay for the ground equipment. So, with a geostationary satellite, the satellite, because it stays in a fixed location in the sky, therefore the ground equipment does not need to be as sophisticated as, say, those needed for a LEO because the LEO are moving around, the ground equipment has to be adjusted and redesigned constantly. But for GEO, you just need to install it once and point at the same location. And this oh. adds to a significant cost savings for the consumer. That's right, yes. And, and, and just generally the bandwidth itself. I know that uh, you know Starlink has offered a lot of bandwidth for a very low uh, cost, but on the other hand, some of their services, especially enterprise services, where they charge a lot more. Um, so I think you know, our, our service is competitive, is a simpler ground system. And again, we also have customers that can pay for more sophisticated ground equipment. So, you know, mm -hmm. we have a mining operation in remote areas, we have schools, hospitals, etc. So those are government facilities that could pay. But generally, you know, the system is simpler, more robust, doesn't need a lot of customer service surrounding it. And our bandwidth cost structure over time, I believe, is actually more competitive than the LEO bandwidth cost structure. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we just talked in general about the cost uh, advantages uh, between a GEO versus a LEO. And if we take a step back and look at the cost advantages between uh, broadband via satellites versus fiber optic, um, and the reason why broadband via satellite is uh, considered cost competitive for remote and less dense populations is because the fiber deployments are, could be challenging because of the extensive civil works to construct the underground fiber ducts, pole attachments, etc. Right? But um, I guess like satellite broadband infrastructure, like the fiber optics infrastructure, also face challenges such as securing technical and business licenses, service provisions to customers also require regulatory approvals in every country or operations. So for our audience who are interested in understanding, you know, some of the challenges from a regulatory perspective, could you maybe speak to speak about some of these regulations and perhaps provide a glimpse into the security requirements that you have to consider? 
so first of all, to come back quickly and close the, the topic on fiber itself, um, you know, the, the installation of a fiber is itself costly, but if there is population density at both ends of that fiber, that could make sense to lay that fiber. It's potentially economical to do so. But then at the end of that fiber landing point, um, in order to make it even more attractive, what you want is to attract even more people pumping bandwidth on that fiber, and you would then need to have distribution. So you need to actually extend the reach of that landing point to further out with microwave, with more towers, etc., which then makes it you know, less and less attractive as you move away from the landing point of that fiber. So the, very often when you hear fiber costs, you feel like, wow, that's very inexpensive. Why aren't we putting that everywhere? Well, that's because it's by definition, a, a fiber is point to point. And at the end of that landing point, if you want to extend it, you need to factor in the cost of distributing that bandwidth via microwave. So that's a small mm. uh, side discussion. But so now in terms of regulatory environments for satellite, uh, well, the first of all is the international community. What you need to do is actually to coordinate your satellite frequencies with other satellites in space. And that's even between LEO satellite and GEO satellite, or even MEO satellite and GEO and LEO. So all these satellites frequencies are coordinated between each other through the International Telecom Union. So it's, a, it's an agency from the United Nations that basically manages all these coordinations and ensure that you can have a clear signal through this coordination and through these licenses. This is the starting point of the regulatory environment of a satellite. Then going into each country, uh, the, you know, especially for countries that are well versed into the satellite world, uh, they have a well established, you know, regulatory environment that requires license that offers licenses to operator who want first to access the country. So some countries have the notion of landing rights where you basically have to go talk to the operator and uh, secure a landing right so that your satellite can start serving their country. And then going down in the value chain, you then have local telecom operator or internet service provider who would then have to take the, uh, what is called a VSAT license. So it's, it's a license to use the frequencies of the satellite to transmit and receive, but also to on-sell that capacity on the market. So this is essentially the, the general regulatory ecosystem that you see with uh, satellites. It's usually straightforward, and some countries have a slightly different flavor. Some countries are still monopolistic, for instance, where mm -hmm. you can only sell your bandwidth to one single party. Some countries require overall frequency clearance. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a few countries that do this, but yeah, generally it's just ITU, landing rights for some countries, and then VSAT license. So not not too different from, say, a fiber optic operator. No, very, very similar, I would say. Um, you talked about, I believe, the bottleneck uh, faced by fiber optic operators in the backhaul sort of services. That is something that I want to pick up on later. But I want to ask about the current trends that we see with broadband via satellite. 
For example, um, the Ukraine crisis, uh, we see that satellite connectivity is the lifeline for governments, organizations, for parties collaborating on the ground. And I believe that Pacific has also recently provided an offering in terms of redundancy, in terms of backups. So could you maybe talk about your perspectives on these uh, market developments? So, so generally, I would say first taking a sl- small step back, the uh, pandemic has actually enhanced the role of satellite in the mind of governments. You know, many, many governments have realized, you know, at their expense that their country was not well connected, especially rural areas were not well connected in the face of the pandemic. That was you know, quite obvious for some countries who didn't even know what was happening in some of their remote areas. So many countries have now put the emphasis and their focus on making sure that they have points of connectivity and adding satellites in the mix of their connectivities especially for rural areas and their remote part of their countries. Then in terms of disaster, it's quite obvious that satellite is the means of communication of choice uh, because very Mm -hmm. often all terrestrial system for natural disaster, especially even sometimes man-made disaster or what we've seen in Ukraine in the face of conflict, you know, the satellite is the way to go as uh, in our ground system are, are suffering from such disasters. But then in terms of backup, this is something that, you know, we hadn't necessarily realized before launching our satellite. And we've seen that more and more of our customer, or I would say, uh, um, a non-negligible part of our end users are using our services for backup. And these backup can be in the heart of cities, which is a place where we didn't think we would have much market. And we see it in large countries like Indonesia, Philippines, where you know sometimes these cities, the large metropolitan areas of these countries have grown a little bit fast. And the terrestrial infrastructure is under stress or is not necessarily mapped out properly. And you have a lot of rogue excavators actually operating there and sometimes cutting Mm -hmm. fiber. And uh, satellite has a a role to play, especially for, you know, kind of software-defined wide area network where the system detects if it lacks internet on the fiber and immediately switches on the satellite. And we've had a number of critical infrastructure, critical uh, service points that have used our service, such as banks, for instance. The banking sector is, is using this quite a bit. In oh, uh, okay. at the heart of cities, in places like Manila or Jakarta, actually. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so on France, we just talked about disaster recovery, emergency service, providing a backup service. And talking about all these trends, and of course, um, we can't avoid talking about 5G, right? Um, tying back to the point of backhaul sort of services, I understand that Pacific has also recently introduced a mobile backhaul service that allow operators to provide internet and 4G connectivity to end users in remote areas. How do you see going from 4G to 5G? How do you see that um, 5G accelerating or shifting the role of uh, satellite-based communications in general? Yeah, you see, I I think that 5G is not going to be, you know, a massive step forward for the areas where we operate in. The essential nature of 5G 
is actually to provide a larger amount of spectrum reuse inside densely post-populated areas. So 5G has very small cells uh, as opposed to 4G that had much larger cells. And so those four cells provide a much higher data rate, but allow the operator to reuse their spectrum inside cities many, many more times. So they don't need more spectrum. Uh, and so the cells are very small with 5G. In rural areas, you don't have that problem because <laughs> by definition, mm -hmm. you don't have the population density That's that right. you have in cities. Mm -hmm. So 5G is currently designed for cities to provide an enhanced amount of spectrum reuse. And uh, I think 5G is promising to actually expand its protocol to a version that will, you know, expand to rural areas with larger cells as well, so that it will be a unified protocol of 5G, both for cities and for uh, rural areas. You know, I think what they'll do is simply expand the protocol, but use large cells, you know, on the 5G waveforms. The, the 4G to 5G in rural areas, you may have a little bit more bandwidth, a bit more efficiency with 5G, but I don't think it will be a revelation or a revolution in, in rural areas, but it will be a great unification so that, you know, you don't see your phone switching from 5G to 4G if you go from urban to rural areas. But, you know, what we have today, we're serving 4G seamlessly in rural areas. It's working great. For instance, in Indonesia, we are pumping internet through our satellite to about 300 mobile backhaul sites across rural Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope to achieve a similar partnership with telcos in the Philippines as well. Um, for listeners who are curious about the, we talked about earlier about the cost advantages. For our listeners who are curious about, you know, the pricing differences, is it is there anything that you can share in terms of the pricing that you are offering in the, the markets that you serve? Sure. To us, the our objective is to try to achieve about one gigabyte for one dollar. You know, mm -hmm. just to be able to compare Apple to Apple across different offerings, right? So That's many right. people talk about megabit per second, one gigabit per second, etc. Mm -hmm. What matters is is really how much you know, data you actually delivering. So mm -hmm. if you want to really compare Apple to Apple, you need to compare the amount of data that you're actually delivering and what is the price of that volume of data, that bucket of data that you have actually delivered to the end user. So our target is around $1 per gigabyte of data delivered. I'm not saying we've achieved that everywhere, in some locations, uh, sometime due to you know resellers that we have to use that take a, a share of the revenue, or due to VAT that you're adding to it, sometime we're approaching around two dollar per gigabyte. But in some countries, we are already below that. We are operating in some countries around zero point seven dollar uh, per gigabyte. So I think at an average, we are pretty much there. And the trend, I would say that this uh, $1 per gigabyte should erode over time. People will want more internet for the same price, you know. That's right. Uh, the internet is becoming richer and richer. Mm -hmm. You can't use 
today's say YouTube with the internet you had at home or at the office from 10 years ago, right? That's so right. you constantly have to provide more bandwidth to just use the same applications because they're becoming richer in content. I estimate that the prices are going to erode by anywhere between five to 10% per annum in a compounded rate uh, over the next 10 years. So speaking about the next 10 years, right? Um, Pacific, as you mentioned earlier, was founded in 2013. Um, about, um, I believe, uh, two years ago, was it uh, two, two or three years ago, your first satellite was launched in 2019. So you are now coming to your 10-year anniversary and you have achieved a lot. So what can you tell us about the next 10 years uh, for Pacific broadband satellites? Sure. So we are quite ambitious. We looking back at our successes. It was quite a rocky road, to tell you the truth, to put mm-hmm. our first satellite in yes. space, to finance it, to show that you know, we knew what we were doing, that we were really focused on this market and that the market could respond. But now you know, we have de-risked our execution risk. Uh, we've showed that we can do it, that we know how to do it, how to design, uh, commission, well, procure, commission and monetize a satellite. And so now we want to replicate that success. Uh, we've showed that our market has responded well to our business model. And so we want just to replicate our business model in not only the same markets, because our satellite, our first satellite is becoming fuller and fuller. We are more than 50% full on our first satellite already, two years into its utilization. So we have uh, issued a request for proposal for a second satellite earlier this year to three well-known established world-class manufacturers. And uh, we hope to select one of these three manufacturers by the end of July. We are well into the financing of our second satellite. We've actually, the RFP that we've issued, the tender we've issued was for two satellites. So it was the second satellite plus an option for a third one. And our grand plan is to continue rolling out in Asia, but potentially outside of Asia. Uh, We have our eyes potentially on Africa as well, Uh, maybe Mm -hmm. eventually on South America. So we want to to grow out of Asia. We want to become a global player in broadband. We think there's a great market out there that will respond very well to our offering. We think there's nothing that that is specific about Asia or the Pacific that cannot be replicated in other markets. You know, it's Mm -hmm. all human. It's all usage of Internet. Uh, So we want to launch seven satellites, have seven satellites flying in space, geo satellites by the end of the decade. Uh, oh, wow, so that's okay. plan. We are harnessing what we've done and uh, and try to to move forward. Right, okay. Well, I look forward to the next launch uh, that you'll be announcing in the next few years. Yeah, so um, I'm conscious that we're coming to the end of our podcast. So, Christian, thank you so much for your time today. Today, we touched briefly on the satellite broadband technology, some cost advantages for consumers, uh, regulations and the trends where satellite communications play an increasing role alongside terrestrial networks. And um, there's a lot of complexities running a satellite company, right? From launching it, getting a payload up, uh, maintenance ongoing, and then relaunching the next version. So thank you for sharing with us a glimpse um, today. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for your interest in Pacific. And thank you for having me.